Support for this podcast comes from TPT Digital, TransPerfect Specialized Division, helping brands boost their global presence and international performance. This is Off the Clock with your hosts, Shane Madden and Whit Harwood, taking a deep dive into the structural changes into the business world as a result of the global pandemic. Hey everyone, I'm Shane. And I'm Whit. And welcome to another episode of Off the Clock, where today we talk to Jack Cohen from First Mark Capital about how brands are using experiential techniques to reach consumers at the emotional level. We've got plenty to talk to today, so Wit, I think we should jump right in. Yeah, let's get to it. Hey guys, thanks so much for, for listening in today. Um, this is Shane Madden, uh, one of the co-hosts of Off the Clock, Senior Director with Transperfect based in New York. Um, I help run our uh, TPT digital division here in North America. Uh, I've got my co-host with Harwood, who's uh, one of our um, kindly agreed to, be, to being a co-host to the show is uh, with a uh, product delivery manager for NBC Peacock. And really excited to have on the pod today, one of our esteemed guests, Jack Cohn. Um, before I pass over to Jack, I guess the theme of today's discussion is consumer consumption. So Jack, thanks a minute for, have, uh, for joining us today. And why don't, why don't you start with giving us the skinny in terms of who you are and, and what your company does? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks a lot, guys, for having me on. Uh, this is a pleasure. Uh, so, yeah, I'm Jack Cohen. Uh, I work at First Mark Capital, which is a uh, early stage, previously early stage, now full stack venture firm in New York City. Um, you might know us from some of our earlier investments in Pinterest, Shopify, Airbnb, Discord, and many others. Uh, I run their expert network uh, on their platform team there. So how that comes to life is I run about 100 events a year for the firm, internal and external. I do all the content, all the marketing, all the community engagement for the firm and the portfolio. Um, and as a part of that, I run these things called guilds, which are uh, you know, our, our latest, greatest product that we're really excited about, which are these verticalized networks for C-suite executives. Um, you know, each of them designed to accelerate the success of the founders. Um, on the side, I also run a professional photography business. And, uh, you know, I guess the reason why I'm here today is I'm also an avid early adopter of uh, consumer apps and all things consumer. Wow. Well, you're certainly the right guy for, for the podcast. So thanks again for joining. Much appreciated. Um, I guess I'd love to kick off with, um, so obviously the recent uh, hit TV series on Netflix, The Queen's Gambit, um, which yep. I, I don't know if you've seen it, but incredible. Oh, of course. That actress course. is mesmerizing. Um, I guess one of the things that you, you had spoken spoken to us about pre, pre-record, which I think is super interesting, is that concept of co-branding and a kind of collaborative experience. And I'd love to get your thoughts on the Queen's Gambit as it relates to maybe Netflix or the producers missing an opportunity to market and sell maybe chess sets as part of the rollout of that program. I'd love to get, get your thoughts on that and, and whether you would agree or disagree with that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a great, uh, interesting topic to dive into. You know, I think when you think about co-branded marketing experiences or, you know, uh, deeper engagement on a given uh, platform or medium, you have to think about, first of all, the platform's restrictions and the ability for that platform to enable additional levels of engagement, right? So, um, you know, while I think it would be a fantastic opportunity for Netflix to try to sell merch or to sell chess sets or, or whatever, we all know that Netflix doesn't have a merch component of their platform built into the system yet, right? That might be something on the roadmap. Um, so I think, you know, first you have to tackle the platform restrictions uh, and, and constraints. And then you have to think about if that's a constraint, where are the other brands or products that I could partner with that might be able to get me to an end goal, right? So 
if I'm Netflix and I'm Queen's Gambit, I'm thinking creatively about, you know, other cultural brands that might be able to step in and fill that gap to help me, you know, build deeper engagement. So, you know, it could be shoe companies like Vans thinking about the, you know, the checker squares on the shoes that might, you know, be a nice pop for them. Or, um, you know, it could be Uber, right. And designing like small experiences around cities that make it feel like a chessboard. You know, there's, there's creative ways that I think they could have probably partnered with others outside of just selling merch themselves. Uh, but it's a really interesting point. Yeah. Happy to dive in further. Well, I think that Jack, one of the things that you and I have talked a lot about is that that partnership side is super important. Understanding what the platform limitations are really important, but then in order, both of those things are really avenues into building communities and building uh, groups of like-minded people. And I mean, obviously that's your day job, but yeah, the, the interesting thing that I think, um, and we're using streaming as one example here, but it, it really can go across multiple different apps and, and products and brands. How are, what is the best way that you've seen so far um, multiple brands come together to build a community that wasn't really there, right? Because when you start to bring products together, you bring audiences together. You're bringing together people in a way that is taking it out of maybe niche or just solo or, or siloed. And then you're, you're saying, okay, this is not an either or proposition. This is a both and proposition. And this is now a community that has kind of greater relevance and meaning to those people. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, you know, I think it's, it's tough to build community. It's the buzzword of 2020. Every <laughs> company is now focused on building community. Uh, you know, some, I think with uh, more ulterior motives than others, but, you know, not to be cynical, I think some brand, you know, one brand that, for example, that has built community around a product that you might not think is super sexy or uh, requires a community or, or warrants a community is baking flour. So King Arthur flour is uh, a company that you may or may not know. If you're a baker, you probably know them. They have one of the most vibrant, high engaging communities on social of any brand out there. And they're kind of under the radar. I mean, I think if you don't, if you don't bake, you don't know about King Arthur flour, you might not be on their, on their uh, channels, but they've done an incredible job of marketing at a higher level than functional, right? So if they were staying at the functional level or the scientific level of flour and trying to engage people on that, you probably wouldn't get that much engagement, right? You wouldn't get people, you know, getting really excited about the ins and outs of the molecular composition or whatever. But I think if you start to come to that higher level, you know, the apples, the Nikes of the world where they're marketing an experience, a feeling, you know, baking is one of the most, you know, warm feeling, cozy at home with your friends and family activities. That's what they lean into. And I think a lot of brands stay too low at the functional utilitarian level of their product in terms of trying to build community around that. And you need to push further to that experiential or uh, emotional level of marketing, which is really at the top and also affords you the ability to market against competitors that might be stuck in those functional realms and you yeah. leapfrog them to be at more of an emotional level. So that's just one example. Um, I don't know if that answered your question, but, uh, you know, just didn't, wanted to give King Arthur Flower a plug. Well, no, and it actually is really interesting, too, because I think that um, especially as the world of, of various different products, and I mean this less about the digital space, more just about kind of anything in the world that is something that we use on a day to day basis, especially as that becomes more direct to consumer, each individual product means something different to that person because they have self-selected to align with that that brand, that product, that promise. 
And, you know, I would love to talk to you a little bit about um, either from the direct to consumer brand and product side, or just broadly speaking, when, when you're thinking about growing a community or you're thinking about growing a product into that non-functional or, uh, you know, beyond the functional space, what's mm -hmm. some of the data that, that either you or, or other founders look at to, to really say, okay, you know what? We're actually seeing we can go beyond what, what we think that is our addressable market. We can actually tap into, you know, if it's flour, then maybe it's like we should align with butter. And maybe that's just the cheesiest reference I've ever made. But, <laughs> but love it. Love what, it. what is kind of the, the data set that you look at to say, OK, you know what? There's actually something beyond what we think our threshold is. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. I think it probably comes more from user research and qualitative feedback than it does from quantitative metrics that are in your product or, you know, which SKUs are selling more than others. You know, I, I don't think you're going to find the insights there. I yeah. think you're going to find the insights more in the deeper user research that you're doing around. How does this person identify, right? What, what are the brands that they identify with? I think identity is something that's not discussed enough alongside community. You have to identify how people identify. And so think about, you know, asking your consumers, um, you know, the classic questions of like, what does a day in the life look like? You know, how, what other products do you associate with ours, right? What other products fill out the puzzle piece of this part of your life, right? So, you know, traditionally people think about it as rooms in the household, right? So what does the living room look like? What does the kitchen look like? What does the, you know, entertainment room look like? And those are kind of easy places to start, right? So Sonos, thinking about partnerships with Wayfair or, you know, uh, Sony or, or other things in the living room might make a lot of sense initially. But I think the deeper, the deeper subset are folks, you know, the ones that I think are on the cutting edge or on the forefront of this, um, you know, are folks like Allbirds or Glossier uh, who don't wait for the data to come to them. They go out and seek it and they validate it with massive customer engagement journeys and customer engagement um, projects. So, you know, for Glossier, they obviously have uh, been a leader in the user generated content, listening to their consumers, making their entire brand showcase what their consumers are thinking about, what they're feeling. Um, on the Allbirds side, you know, they're a shoe company. They could very easily stay at that utilitarian level, right? right. We have comfy shoes and right. you can run 200 miles before you need to replace them or whatever it might be. <laughs> but I think they've leaned into, you know, not only the sustainability piece, but also trying to become one of these more cultural leaders within the brand sense. So their partnership with the Met to, to partner with artists and collaborate on, you know, future shoe designs. So, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways that folks can do it. But I think if you want to be leading versus following, you have to be creative about, um, you know, pulling it up one level higher than just the room in the household or, uh, you know, the SKUs that are most frequently purchased. I have, personally, uh, oh, go ahead, Shane. Sorry, yeah, I have a quick story on that. And by the way, I'm actually wearing all birds as we speak. Uh, <laughs> Love I it. Have, I have two quick stories, right? So I'm such an idiot with e online e-commerce purchase or, or buying, right? So I love their shoes. I have them in black, white, wall, not like you, you name it, I have it. So I literally have six pairs in my wardrobe. Yeah. Not, not on purpose. I thought I was buying. So I, I went to buy one like white wall shoes, size 11, US. Yep. And instead of buying one, I bought three. 
mistakenly. So three show up. Yeah. So if anyone needs a spare pair of Allbirds, I'm, I'm your guy. <laughs> anyway, I digress. So I, interesting, you talk about something that's, that, that's really, um, really fitting. So I, I, I worked back in the day, I worked uh, for a smoothie company called Innocent Drinks that um, subsequently got bought by Coca-Cola. One of the coolest experiential uh, activations that they rolled out was a campaign over the summer of about 2006, and it was buy one, get one tree. So for every for every product of Innocent Smoothie that you bought, they would plant a tree in the Amazon. And it was it, it was fundamentally core to especially millennials at that point and, and with climate change and all that sort of stuff. I just thought it was, I, I thought it was really, really clever. Now, on top of that, they rolled out a, uh, a new product uh, as part of their, their new product development and, and R&D. They rolled out a new package for their for their product. And it was I think it was the first brand in the UK and Ireland where it was made of PET. So the packaging was recyclable. And it was as a result of those two activations at that time in 2006, 2007, it was the fastest growing brand in the UK. So just to a testament to, to kind of what you're saying here about the experiential on just more than, you know, the functional use of the shoe or, you know, the functional yeah. use of a smoothie, which, you know, the net benefits are great. Like it's going to make you feel healthy, but it's a lifestyle decision, right? So I would also, yeah, I, I think that's a fantastic point, Shane. And one other thing I'd say on that, that you hit the nail on the head on is you want to help I mean, if you step back, right, one of the things that I think builds the most affinity with a product is whether that product makes the consumer feel like they're doing better in the world, right? That they're progressing the state of the world in some fashion. Now, climate change, as we all know, is a massive issue, one that not is, is not solved by one pair of shoes and can feel overwhelming when it's like, hey, you have to go buy an energy efficient car. You need to you know, cut down on your consumption by X amount. So any ways that brands can creatively tie sustainability or, or um, you know, social progress to their products to, to each purchase, I think is something that, again, the smartest brands out there are doing day in and day out. I mean, even mega platforms like Shopify now on their shop tracking app show you every single purchase and the carbon offset that you're, you're providing. That makes me feel good. That, that may, may be the decision for me using Shopify over Amazon or PayPal or, or some other platform. It's a simple things like that. And then there's also the social component where if you can really bake that into, and this is what I love as a, a new trend in consumer apps, there's actually an app called Ariel uh, that the whole purpose is to socialize your climate, your, your reduction in climate footprint. So being able to kind of gamify it, and we all know gamification is a great you know, tactic for, for engagement, but um, you know, I think uh, not to ramble on here, but uh, you know, Shane, I think that just reminded me that Brands that can tie, you know, Tom's is a classic example. Bombas does a great, you know, one for one donate program. So I think not enough brands really lean into that. Um, and there are simple ways you can do it uh, where it makes consumers feel like by purchasing your product, which is beneficial for you from a revenue standpoint, they're benefiting the world. And therefore that builds a stronger affinity than a simple transaction. I think if you, and there's a, a broader point there too, Jack, that, that you talked about a minute ago, which is really there's, there's the competitive aspect of it. And, and thinking about this from kind of the, the go-to-market side or the product strategy side, you know, there's the competitive aspect of every product, right? Where you kind of have your, your eyes set on a competitor within the industry, uh, somewhere you want to be, but then there's yep. the complementary component of it. And I think where there's a lot of growth that other products or brands might not realize is 
you can you don't necessarily have to have your Jack Donaghy mentality, just to use a 30 Rock reference, trained all the time in the I'm going to go out and I'm going to steal market share. There are aspects that you can take from adjacent markets, adjacent products and concepts to say, you know what, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to, you know, you know, save a tree like Shay mentioned or, or something like that. And I think yeah. there's an interesting insight there, which is the consumer doesn't think in the hyper-competitive way at every moment of the day. And right. so you mentioned something that was really interesting, which is about like the, the day in the life, the life cycle, the listening to consumers. If you're really listening to your consumer, the, the consumer goes through different sets of emotions every day. They go through different peaks and valleys in their day. And they're like their, their brain waves aren't trained on their opposition all the time. So as right. a brand, as a product, you actually, sure, there's gamification, there's, there's growth engagement methods to, to fully try to capture every moment of attention that you can. But the life cycle of a consumer's day, they're going through a lot, right? And yeah, you actually yeah. want to make sure that your product is there at every moment of that consumer's daily journey. And I feel like yeah. that's a that's a point that we're, we're all making here, but we've all kind of gotten away from. It's like, okay, I, I have friends at Peloton, and I'll stop here in a second, but you know, they're thinking about how, what's a Peloton day look like, right? It's not just, I wake up in the morning and I work out and I go to sleep and I meditate before bed, right? There's gotta be a way to capture time and attention from whatever, 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. and every other moment in between. Yeah, I mean, I, that's a great point. I, I think that there's a, uh, I don't know if it's a controversial take, but I, I do have a, a you know, we slight, it's a, controversial a, slight, take, a slight rebuttal to that. Um, you know, I think this is something, so I used to run uh, social and community at, at, uh, at Blue Apron, which was, um, you know, a once high-flying food delivery company. Incredible mission. Loved the my time there and the entire team, um, you know, grew the community from about 75,000 folks to, to close to two, 2 million folks on, across all the platforms. So incredible journey. Happy to dive in more there. But one of the things we used as a framework on the marketing team was uh, three different personas with respect to the engagement depth, and we can dive into you know a little bit of a pool framework that I have in a bit, but engagement depth on our product, right? So with respect to cooking, there were three different types of people. There were avoiders, which are your you know cereal, seamless, Grubhub, DoorDash orders, just don't just absolutely despise cooking, and we didn't really talk to them that much in our marketing materials and our product. We didn't really focus on them. There were aspirers, which was the center group which was folks that wanted to cook more, maybe don't have enough time, maybe have other commitments that get in the way or don't know how to really up-level their cooking. And then there were uh, enthusiasts. And enthusiasts are, you know, I consider myself an enthusiast most of the time, uh, but, you know, cooking four to five nights a week, loving to explore different ingredients, et cetera, et cetera. The key, the key insight is not that there are three groups of people. The key insight is that any one individual can be one of those people, one of those personas, multiple times throughout the week. And so it's it's not about saying they're all avoiders and they're all enthusiasts. It's about identifying how what percentage of the time are they the respective buckets and how do we serve them the right depth of content that they're gonna wanna engage in um, you know, at every level. So avoiders, we might not, they might not wanna read a 20 page, you know, playbook on how to roast a chicken. But they might be interested in five ways to uplevel your knife skills, you know. Right. And so it's it's thinking about how you it's it's both for content creation and application, and also the engagement levels, uh, you know, really manifest themselves in which platforms you're talking to consumers on and how so, deep you go. 
let's try let's dive into that pool framework for a second because you mentioned a few things that um immediately evoke the the pool analogy in terms of depth and um you, you didn't say drowning in a 20 page recipe which i would be drowning in i a should have i should have but go back and re-record it but um i think that there's a lot in that pool framework and just kind of that that approach to think through okay there are people that are naturally going to be in a shallower set of a, any individual community, you know what, sometimes they might want to, uh, let's just blow the analogy out, dip a toe in the deep end. And, and there <laughs> might be, I'm great at bad puns today. I don't know. It's something it. it's butter, butter and deep end. I'm more, of a, I'm more of a cannonball guy myself. But yeah, go ahead. <laughs> exactly. But there are ways to, to migrate users from the, the shallow into the deep end. I would love to just hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the first, first, uh, you know, note that I'd say about the pool is, um, you know, similar to what I just said, you're not going to, people aren't going to stay in the deep end forever. And they're not going to stay in the shallow end forever. Um, they might get out of the pool altogether, which is not what you theoretically, what you don't want, right? That maybe, maybe that's considered churn or, or, or who knows, maybe they're just going to take a break, um, bask in the sun for a bit, but in terms of moving, in terms of, I really, I'm going, we're going deep on this. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of, you know, we've got, we've got a whole persona built around this person at the pool. Um, in terms of how to get people deeper in the pool, I think it's a matter, I think series are a really great way to do this. Um, so building ha habitual reasons to come back and engage on deeper and deeper levels with more people in the same community is a really great way. One that I've seen work really well, both at First Mark in our portfolio and, and, and at Blue Apron. Um, so one example of that <clears throat> is, you know, I think again, Think about the consumer, right? They don't think about your entire, they're not thinking about your entire marketing strategy all the time. They're not thinking about all the different products you provide them or all the values that they get. They're just thinking about the use case, typically that one little, you know, moment in time. And the more you can habitualize that moment, the stronger affinity and identity you'll build with that user. So something that we did at, at Blue Apron that was super, super simple was, and I was testing, I mean, underscoring this is just massive amounts of testing, right? Just testing right. constantly on different platforms having a perspective on each platform, knowing, being able to, if a consumer comes up to me on the street and asks me, why should I be a part of this platform or this community? You know, mm -hmm. Twitter, your Twitter versus Instagram versus Facebook versus Snapchat. I should have a really good answer as yeah. to why there's a difference of the platforms and typically it relates to depth. So at, at Blue Apron, mm -hmm. Facebook was for community. It was for bi-directional engagement. So we wanted to talk to and hear from the community on Facebook. Instagram was for inspiration and wanderlust. So, <clears throat> you know, the platform's not great at two-way communication. It was really more of a one-way inspiration giving community. Mm -hmm. And then Twitter was more for those news nuggets, quick tips. You know, you may be able to tie those to the three different personas I discussed. Um, but sorry, I digress. The, the, yeah. the concept, the series that I used on Facebook that was one of the, our most successful ones was something called uh, Fan Friday. Um, mm -hmm. and also, you know, it was, it was basically a way where we would, I had the creative team take a bunch of photos of empty plates. They thought I had three heads when I asked them, they're like, why do you want empty plates? Like we are a food company. Don't you want food on the plate? I was like, nope, just give me some nice empty plates. And I put major questions in big, bold text in a share image that I would post each Friday in the, mm -hmm. in the morning. And these were fun questions. It was like, you know, what's your desert Island food? Um, you know, are tacos. A, tacos. Yeah, tacos, yeah, tacos <laughs> is, is a hot dog, a sandwich, you know, is cereal, a soup, like, <laughs> things like that that really get the, you know, blood boiling of the community. 
But um, what it did was it gave the community a space to very lightweight. So thinking about barriers to entry, really lightweight way to say, I have an answer to that. I'm going to contribute. Mm -hmm. And that then made that series one of our most um, kind of explosive in a, gr in a good way series where people would come back. They'd be expecting the series each week. Yeah. And that moved, I think, a lot of people from the aspires or the avoiders to, you know, the respective bucket one above, um, which just enables you to have them closer to the other material that you're serving them, whether that's video content um, or, or what or what have you. So um, that was a really successful campaign and one that I uh, was glad we, you know, we uh, found some success with. So, Joker, we have some um, we in terms of our listenership, we've got a lot of uh, e-commerce companies, brands, retailers, FMCG, yep. CBG. Yep. So one of the things that you touched on before recording was the, the this idea of brand communities, not just in terms of the migration from the shallow end of the pool back to the pool, the shallow end of the pool to the to the deep end. But like the development of those brand communities such that you're trying to penetrate the opinionated communities and strong views because they're really the vocal people that are going to carry your brand, probably represent the brand equity, i.e. assets and liabilities to your brand. Like, do you, what, I guess the question is, what, what, what advice do you have in terms of firstly penetrating those really strongly opinionated brand communities and then how do you optimize it? Yeah, so just to clarify, are you talking about identifying your super users within your community right. and yep. then how do you yep. activate them? Okay. That's exactly right. So, you know, not to belabor the analogy, but if you have a jacuzzi that's your VIP or your your most highly engaged users, and that's that's kind of your um, your it's a much small it has to be a much smaller group. So right, you're not trying to build a massive community of super users because I think any any healthy community has those very those kind of variations of uh, engagement levels. You're not going to have everyone be super engaged. So I think early on it's super important to identify maybe a hundred, five hundred, a thousand early adopters, super users, however you, you know, um, identify that, that group. And, you know, there are some ways you can do it where it's uh, highest LTV, um, you know, uh, most referrals, you know, Blue Apron, 50% of the business had come from the invite program. So that was a really good way to say like, okay, well, this person has shared Blue Apron with a thousand of their friends. Like they probably like us, like we should probably talk to them. We should probably get them in the jacuzzi and, and start engaging with them a little bit more. But I think someone someone recently said, I'm, uh, I don't have a <clears throat> source for the quote, but they said, your most opinionated or, or most outspoken users will get you, you know, to a million in revenue or 10 million in revenue, but your ability to ignore those same users is what's going to get you to a hundred million. And so I don't think, I don't think that it's the same group that takes you from, you know, the classic zero to one that takes you from one to a hundred. Um, but I think that's natural. Like I think people evolve, like people's relationships with communities and brands evolve in such a way where I think what's imperative with that early group is that you drive home the message that they are a part of the team building from that zero to one or the one to 10, right? And that at some point, it's almost like a consumer ad, you know, uh, advisory board in, in B2B. You're going to at some point have to mature that group, expand it, refresh it. So I think being super clear upfront about what that time horizon looks like for engagement and how and what the cadence of engagement and activity set looks like for that group. Um, so it could be something as simple as, you know, every quarter we're going to get together on Zoom and do a debrief on the latest product developments. And that's going to last for eight quarters. Um, you know, it could be as simple as, uh, you know, 
record a, a loom of you using the product or you, you know, checking out through the flow and, and narrate where you feel like there are issues. Um, you know, th those are just a couple ideas of how to engage that group. But, um, you know, and then I think one thing that a lot of brands miss on because they don't think it's a top priority and it absolutely should be is loyalty early on is, is, is building structure around loyalty. Obviously retention is something that everyone wants, right? You want to keep your customers around. You want to keep them happy. But um, I think, frankly, this was an area where at Blue Apron, we didn't do enough in the early days. I mean, we had people spending thousands of dollars on our product and we had, you know, really no loyalty program for them. We had no way to feel, even in the most basic sense, for them to feel like they were special. And it's, it's shocking to see, like, I mean, it's shocking and also inspiring uh, or, or uh, you know, hope giving that it doesn't take much to make people people feel special. Um, so, you know, one of my favorite new brands is a, is a coffee company called Cometeer, uh, which is actually a, a Massachusetts company. So uh, go socks. But, uh, yeah. you know, they, they, you know, I won't get too much into the product. It's a, it's a new take on coffee and, and sort of K-cup style pods. But, you know, they're a couple months into existence and they already have a, you know, refer three people, get a tumbler or refer 10 people, get like a special, you know, espresso kit. Like that's, that's enough. That can be enough in the early days. And I know it's an expense, right? It hits the bottom line, but um, you know, I, I do think it's important to at least find that subset that you're really going to build that loyalty with. Um, so yeah, yeah I know well, I rambled on there, but. No, you, you mentioned something that I think is really important with growth in general, which is uh, you know, your, your most avid users are the people that are also most likely to evangelize new customers. Um, yep. One business that I, I think has done that incredibly well, just exited uh, Morning Brew, the, uh, the uh, yep. newsletter business, um, just exited with, uh, to Insider Inc. Um, I actually went to school with the, the co-founder, Jack and I eventually went to school later. So everyone I went to school with did more interesting things than I did. Um, but, uh, but he hasn't, he hasn't done a podcast. Don't sell yourself, <laughs> yeah, yourself short, man. Right. Uh, but, uh, no, you, you mentioned something really interesting, which is acknowledging, uh, that these users have a reason for being a part of your community. And yep. I, I think that there, there's a concept that you and I have talked about before, long before the podcast, which is kind of around this social Dunbar number, which is yep. how, you know, how many communities can I actively be engaged in? And it's funny, you use the man on the street. Um, like if you walked up to me and asked me, why am I on Facebook? Why am I on Snapchat? Like the first thing that I thought about was, you know what? I'm, I'm only really on Snapchat because I had it in college, right? Like I'm only really right. on Facebook because I had it in um, high school. And yeah. I, I think that it's just this, especially when we take that to the brand level, you want to have these loyalists and those loyalists are going to drive your next phase of users on the platform. So yeah. the, I mean, I, I phrased the question back to you first to kind of frame what um, the kind of how you can see the social Dunbar number, but then also how can brands think of being in that top five communities or whatever our threshold is? Yeah, no, it's a great point. Yeah. And I, and so I've thought about, I've thought about this a lot. The, the, uh, the back the backstory for the Dunbar number, if you don't know, if you're listening, is um, you know the Dunbar number typically represents the number of relationships that you can that a, that an individual can hold and the depth of those relationships, right? And so the more uh, 
the more the higher the number the the less engaging you can be with that respective person i've now used that a little bit more to talk about you know there's plot there's a platform dunbar number there's definitely a community's dunbar number um and so just quickly to talk touch on the platform one yeah. you know people if, if brands expect <clears throat> a given user to be deeply engaged on all of the different platforms i think that's a that's just um an unrealistic expectation for the users so that's again it goes back to the depths of of content and and knowing that you know twitter is a lighter weight engagement versus versus Facebook or whatever. But for the community Dunbar number, look, every brand, we talked about this at the outset, every brand is launching a community. I have not seen one brand ask me what other communities I'm a part of. And right. that's a huge mistake. One, just for you know user research, right? Understanding what other brands I uh, feel affinity to and what other communities I identify with, but also for opportunities, we talked about this, you know, opportunities for collaborative communities similar brands building those communities together um you know you asked about you know, slack is a great example because there's literally you know on the left side uh, there's a workspace uh list and that's really all the communities that you're a part of but you know you can sign out of those and only have three or four in there at any one point so how i think about it a lot is how does a brand stay above the watermark right above the water level of not being you know relegated so to speak if we're using you know ep english premier league speak how do you get how do you not get relegated to you know sign out world i think what the way you need to the way you do that is first by asking your members what other communities they're a part of and um and then just driving a little bit deeper as to uh why they're a part of that respective community not trying to hit them over the head with um you know too many forms of engagement yeah. yeah. Well, first off, relegation right now as an Arsenal fan is something that just it hits a little too close to home. Um, I'm sorry, mate. But I, I think that's a that's a great point, and um, I think that's a, a great place to wrap too. So, Jack, thanks so much for the time. Um, thanks for coming on the pod, and uh, hopefully, we'll we'll have you back, and we can keep going uh, further on this stuff because I know that there's a lot to get to. Yeah, absolutely. Shane, Witt, uh, really appreciate it. Um, you know, all the listeners out there, thanks for, thanks for taking some time and, and, uh, uh, you know, happy to, happy to continue the discussion on Twitter at it's Jack Cohen, uh, or, uh, you know, or you can find me on email at Jack Cohen at Hey.com. Amazing. Thanks fellas. Awesome. Thanks, thanks a lot. Guys. Thank you for joining us today, Jack. And thank you to our listeners. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any questions, you can reach out to us personally on offtheclockattptdigital.com. For more information on how you can grow your brand globally, head to our website, tptdigital.com.